in marriage, women and men behave, think, feel, act, are different. That is um, easily the most controversial and the least controversial thing I will say all day. Um, hmm. Last year, at that mom, though, um, posted something. She posted this. Accidentally used my husband's body wash, and now I don't move out of the way when someone's walking towards me. <laughs> not, not that funny. But then someone picked up that thing, shared it, and added their own punchline. Accidentally used my husband's body wash. Now I grab my husband's rear every time he walks by. <laughs> that was a little more funny. But then something, um, whatever dark magic it is, algorithms, human nature, whatever it is that makes something go viral, this went viral. And so by the time it came to me, by the time it hit me, um, it had been shared and posted. And uh, by the time I saw it, people, by which I mean women, had added 121,000 comments to this. <laughs> yeah. Would you like to hear a few? Yeah, so... Now, driving 70 miles per hour down a highway, I can spot a deer tail across the field at the edge of the woods, two trees back on the left. But I can't find the supersized jar of mayo front and center in the fridge. <laughs> Why is that? I mean, someone, please. Ah. Now, when I do household, uh, household chore, I announce it as if I've donated a kidney. <laughs> and then I await the marching band and confetti that should follow. Uh, now I'll be excited to see what I bought my family <laughs> for Christmas. That is my favorite part of Christmas. <laughs> oh, it's a surprise for all of us. This is going to be great. <laughs> now when I leave for vacation with what I have on my back, while the rest of the family is magically all packed, <laughs> I don't know how it works, but it's great. Uh, my wife cried when she read this one. Now I use house towels for outside things and then wad them up and throw them in the corner of the garage for my husband to find six months later. Sounds like a good plan to me. Um, this is my personal favorite one. So true. Now I can't pick up a stud finder without pointing it at myself and laughing hysterically. Every single time. I have to... I, uh, who hasn't done that? Come on. <laughs> uh, but then about a hundred comments deep, at Karen Besk added this comment. I lost my husband last November, and I'm purposely using his body wash because it reminds me of him. And all the things he used to do for me, the gifties he'd bring me, and phone calls to see how my day was going, for some odd reason, even the annoying things he used to do have become endearing things. Yeah. That. Thank you, at Karen Visk. So in marriage, women and men behave, think, feel, are different. Now, I don't want to overstate this because there are many more ways and more significant ways in which we're not different, in which we're alike, in which we are the same. Um, but differences there are. Husbands are not wives, wives are not husbands, and how we 
posture ourselves towards one another in our differences, how we, we posture ourselves towards one another is a big, big deal. Uh, the, the scriptures suggest that my posture in marriage towards my spouse, towards the one who is not like me in every way, who's different from me, but with whom I, am, I have united my life, my posture towards her is inextricably bound up with how I reflect the image of God, what it means to be fully human, how I reflect Jesus' love and faithfulness. Like I said, it is a big, big deal. So today we're going to talk about marriage. Specifically, and I'm using this word carefully, we're, we're going to talk about how Christ's posture towards us, towards you and me, how his, um, his unconditional love, his ridiculous, unbreakable faithfulness, his, his radical forgiveness, his, his sacrifice, how his posture towards us will redefine, reshape, and redeem our posture towards one another in marriage. Now, there are so many ways we could go wrong here. I cannot possibly name or address all the legitimate doubts, concerns, questions, and fears. I'm going to follow the Apostle Paul's example and talking about this in big, sweeping terms, but I do not, I do not want to sweep away your concerns under the rug. I, I don't mean to do that. So just to be clear, let's talk about what we're not talking about today, okay? All right? Three things we're not talking about. I'm not talking about, and the Apostle Paul is not talking about here, narrowly defined gender roles in marriage. It's not there. There are gender differences in marriages. There are. But there's also a lot of room, enormous amounts of room in which for the Spirit to work in, in you and in your relationship and your particular time, place, culture, relationship, your marriage. There's enormous amounts of room for the Spirit to work and lead you. So, so my parents are about as traditional as it gets in terms of like a wedding marriage roles. Like there's man's work and woman's work in, in their relationship, always has been. That's how I, I was raised. I can't live like that. My mom, her mind is blown every time she sees my wife, like, take out the trash. She's like, how, what, huh? wait, wait, I'll get Paul, don't do that. <laughs> like, my wife takes out the trash and uses power tools, right? So, I can't fit into those necessarily, but I also, I can't fault them. You know why? Because my parents, in their very specific roles that they've chosen, have such a sweetness in the way they treat one another that it's beautiful. So you can be very traditional or very untraditional. That's not the question we're talking about today. So if you come up to me after this service and say, yeah, but what should I do and what should my spouse do? What's my role and her role? Like in specific things here, I will say, well, unless you're talking about breastfeeding, I'm not going to have a lot of advice there. I'm going to tell you, um, hey, that's a great question. Have you prayed about it? Have you submitted your own desires in this? Have, have, you, have you thought about what love leads you to do? That's how I'm going to answer that, okay? Number two, we are not talking about opening yourself up to abuse, manipulation, control, dominance, fits of rage, or immorality of any kind. We, we're not talking about that. Some of you grew up in churches, or have come from churches in which these very verses were used to empower and perpetuate abuse, oppression, evil. Evil. 
I'm sorry. I can't imagine how these verses sound to you given what you've been through. My prayer is that with time and space and grace that can heal, that the Spirit, who is so kind and so gentle, will come alongside you and give you a new vision for God's love and marriage, a new vision of his grace. But if you're not there yet, that's okay. Like, you're exactly where God needs you to be in your journey with him today, and we just want to help you take the next step. And if that's wrestling with God, if that's being angry, if that's complaining, if that's coming up for prayer afterwards, wherever you're at, that's okay. We just want to meet you there and help you take your next step, all right? Number three, there are a handful of you in this room right now who are Bible nerds. You can't wait for me right now to talk about Aristotelian household codes and how they, they're, they're brought in as the missional structure of the early church or trajectory hermeneutics or about how the, the role of women in diaspora synagogues or the new Roman women in the first century who are upending traditional uh, gender roles or the mother, mother goddess cult in ancient Ephesus where there's like Artemis and Sybil and, and there was this whole thing about men castrating themselves and it's beyond weird. Yeah, we're, we're not going to talk about any of that. Mm. It's okay. After the service, come up. I'll give you a hug and a stack of books to read. Get through this. Um, This is all fascinating, but it's all peripheral and not central to what the Apostle Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 5. So we're just not going to talk about that. Instead, what we are going to talk about today is we are going to follow the Apostle's lead in this conversation. And we're going to talk about marriage in the broadest possible context. Broadest possible context. And I mean that like literally. Not, not specific gender roles, as important as those might be for you to figure out within your relationship, and not practical how-to. Again, super important. We're not going to talk about that. And we're not going to set up some like moral decision tree in which you never have to make another decision. That, I'm not going to give that to you. I don't want you to have that. But instead, we're going to set our marriages in the context of God. Of God. So in the context of what it means to be human made in his image in the context of what it means to be sinners, uh, creatures who seek to be independent from the God who created them, which is insane, Um, in the context of what it means to be loved more than you can possibly imagine by the God of the universe. So, which is to say, uh, which is to make the not-so-subtle suggestion here, that what our marriages most need today is not for me to like fix your spouse or define your gender roles. That's not what we most need. That might, you might need that, but I can't fix your spouse and, and the Apostle Paul is not going to define things. I dare not myself. What we most need today is to see our marriages the way God sees them. To realize that our marriages are, and, and this intentional wording here, ancient wording, They are a mirror of love. To realize that our marriages are created, that this this hard, fun, challenging, beautiful, maddening thing we call marriage, in that we have the opportunity to reflect God's love back to him and then reflect God's love that we've experienced to one another in a way that, well, nothing else in creation can do. So much so that the Apostle Paul will say this, it is a mystery. So if that's too theological or spiritual for you, I get it. No worries. Um, we're going we're gonna to put the cookies on the lower shelf. Here. We're going to talk about marriage um, in big, broad scope. But before we get to Ephesians, which is where we're going to be today and then 
the next few weeks to finish up the book of Ephesians. Uh, I'm going to lay out some context. We're going to talk about marriage in the biggest, broadest possible context in, in three acts, really. The story of marriage in three acts. Marriage in paradise. Uh, hell, the hell of a broken marriage, intentionally chosen that word, and marriage and the cross. All right? Marriage in paradise. The story begins, you know this story. I hope you know this story. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God, right? He created, only God does this. He creates things. And and if if you know the story, you've heard this before, he speaks things into existence. Let there be light. And there was light. And, and it was so. And then he, se- he creates all these realms and f- then he fills them all with these things and separates everything out. And each time it is good, is it good, is it good. And this happens for five days till the whole universe is created except um, something's missing. So on the sixth day, he says, let us make human. That's, that's the sense of the term. Not, not just a man, but human in our image and in our likeness. That in some way, um, God's image will be reflected in this one who is the pinnacle of creation, the, the, um, this one who is overall creation, that in some special way, humans reflect the image of God in the way that no like, sycamore tree or, I don't know, emperor penguin can. It's unique. Then we finally get to the part where we need to read. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 27. So God created mankind, literally human, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And immediately, uh, there's so much we could say here, but there's just two things that are just obvious, pop off the page. The first thing is that we see that male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created him. They're all, all of humanity, according to this verse, according to the story of creation, all of humanity, all of them are created in the image of God. This, in the late Bronze Age, when this was written, was a shocking piece of, like, radical feminist populist literature. You know that, right? So, so in, the, in, in that context, um, kings might be called, said to image God, and maybe some priest or something like that might said, be said to image God. But here, in this story, it makes the audacious claim that every single human being, even women, are made in the image of God. And then the second thing is we see that God made us male and female. That he designed us, his image, to be reflected in gendered persons. Which is to suggest that gender is not arbitrary, it's not caused by sin, it's not just cultural, it's not merely personal preference or strong inner feelings, that it is God-given. And to use the Hebrew term, it is tov, tov. It is not just good, it is good, good, Right? So then we go to Genesis chapter 2, and the plot thickens. We get the human story, this glimpse of how a man and a woman are designed to reflect the image of God in relationship. We get a picture of marriage. So Genesis chapter 2, 7, God takes the dust, and he, he forms it into a, a human. He takes the adama, the dirt, and, and forms an, an atom. Oh, look, we have an atom here, a human. And then he breathes his spirit into him, and he becomes a living spirit. And now this man, he then receives a, he gets a tour of paradise and he gets the rules. Uh, You can eat from every tree, every tree, except there's just one you can't eat from. And then we read Genesis chapter two, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. 
Now, let's be careful here. The word helper might not have the same context of what you're thinking in English. Helper here is not in any way derogatory. It's not like, oh, man, this guy needs someone to help him find the mayo, right? It's someone to pack for vacation. That's not what this means. This, um, it's like me helping my teens with their homework because I'm better at it. I got skills they don't got. They need my help. I'm the helper. God calls himself the helper in Deuteronomy 33, Hosea 13. To be a helper is not a weak thing. So this guy needs a helper suitable. It's literally corresponding. That he needs a helper that corresponds with him, that, that fits him. That's the image, that humanity, human, is incomplete without both male and female. So God, God then says to him, you, my friend, you need help. You cannot do this. It's not good. Uh, you need a wife. And then he brings them all the animals. Remember this? He brings them all the animals, and he has to name them all, like uh, aardvark and whatever, weeping willow and whatever. And, the, and none of them were a suitable helper for him. And after realizing his great need, God then does this. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed, it up, closed up the place with flesh. So this uh, translation rib is a little overly anatomical here. Um, the It literally could be translated like side. Like remember, he formed the Adam out of the dirt, like um, like a potter with a piece of clay. This is more like Play-Doh. Like you take a side of Play-Doh, you rip it in half, and you create two new things. That's the image here. It's it's side or half. He took a side of the human, or he took half the human. Henri Blochet, who's like just a genius on this text, is a, a French commentator and, and biblical scholar. He explains that this text almost certainly has a double meaning here, that it's not that God made the woman from his side, but in the woman, we see a side of humanity, which we could never see apart from the woman, that, that she is his missing half. That's the image here. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. There's much we could say on here, but let's just leave it with poetics of the, uh, the Puritan author, Ma- uh, Matthew Henry. He says it this way from the 1700s. The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. However we read this text... This much is clear. Women and men are equal but different. Different by design, like God designed it that way. Women and men are different but complementary. Like men and women are literally designed to interlock with one another, not just physically, but, but emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. And when male and female, when they finally come together in this text, when man and woman come together in what we now call marriage, there is a completion to it that is, um, we might call wholeness or the Hebrew word shalom to it that has to be celebrated, that is beautiful, that that no man or no woman could know on their own, but only when they come together. In fact, we get this text. The man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It's, it's poetry. It's singing. It's a wordplay. He's like, she shall be called Isha for she was taken out of Ish. And he sings this song. Like, do you know the Eddie James? At last, my love. That's where she gets it. 
That's where she, at last! That's what he, he's singing at a games to her, and then they get married and make babies. This is the first wedding. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So here we have this picture, a man and a woman, equal but different, different but complementary, coming together in completion, and it is a complete self-giving, like physically, emotionally, spiritually, sexually, and it is a, it, they're naked, but this is not in some like, ah, oh, junior high, ah, you're naked. No, this is, this is complete vulnerability and openness. Like nothing stands between me and you, nothing. You know, every, you see me to my core and you love me. You, you know everything about, you have access to all of me and you love me. Complete love, complete commitment, complete oneness and no shame. And this, this is marriage in paradise. And get this, it's paradise in marriage. It's both. It's marriage in paradise, but it's also paradise in marriage. Equal but different, different but not competing, complementing, different but made for each other, different but made to be one. And, and notice, there's, there's no reference to like who's going to go trim the apple orchard and who's going to mow the lawn. There's, there's no assigning of roles here, none. But it's equally clear that husband is not wife and wife is not husband. These are not interchangeable. God designed them to be different but equal, to complete one another. She's his missing half. Which brings us to chapter 2, the hell of a broken marriage. So we turn the page and things immediately fall apart if you know the story. Uh, the serpent tempts Eve, he, Adam's standing right there, he's right there the whole time, and he says nothing, does nothing. She eats, he eats, and then God shows up. But the Lord God called to the man, where were you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And this, there's so much to say, but for the first time, just just feel this. For the first time, man feels anxiety. Do you ever feel anxiety? Inadequate. He fears, he feels fear, shame. He fears vulnerable, but it's not beautiful. It's terrifying. He realizes that he's naked, but not just without clothes, that he's utterly exposed, utterly just out there. He realizes that others can see him for who he is, for what he is. He realizes how vulnerable and ridiculous he is because he's a naked man claiming to be in the position of God, and it's ridiculous. And he realizes how exposed he is, and he can't stand it. He has to cover up. He has to hide. He has to cover up because he can't have, he, he has to control how he sees himself. He has to control how, how you see him. He has to control how God sees him. So he hides. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman, it's her fault. But no, it's your fault. You put her here. You put her here. And she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So it's, it's her fault and it's your fault. And then God says, um, the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And you see what's happening here, right? 
This is not hidden or tricky. Adam blames Eve and God. Eve blames the serpent. Everyone's blaming someone else. Everyone's hiding. Fear, shame, anxiety, all of that just... And so when our relationship with God is ruptured, when it's broken, uh, something within us and outside of us uh, gets broken. When, when our relationship with God is broken, it creates division and separation within us, within our very hearts. We now feel separated within ourselves and, and in our relationships with the world and with everyone else. And we see this in the next few chapters of Genesis because this just cascades into racism, sexism, xenophobia, misogyny, and almost every imaginable evil until God has to clean the slate with Noah. But this passage... It focuses on one point. It wants us to see one thing. It highlights the particular brokenness between a man and a woman, between husband and wife, and in, in, in marriage. So get the contrast. In chapter 2, the pinnacle of, of, of who you're created to be, of life with God, of the beauty of living in paradise is a relationship between a man and a woman. It's a, it's a garden wedding. It's, it's um, marriage in paradise and paradise in marriage. But then you flip just one chapter over, and the moment that then will set forth everything else uh, is very, very different. In chapter 2, it's marriage and paradise, paradise and marriage. And the words of that, um, classic words of that great theologian Bruno Mars. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because you make me feel like I've been locked out of heaven for too long. Do you hear those words? Augustine himself could have written those words. Why? Because, because this is the way marriage is supposed to be. It's supposed to be um, marriage in paradise and paradise in marriage. But then, like I said, we turn the page. And where do we find the point of some of the world's greatest pain, abuse, fear, shame, guilt, anger, sadness? It's a relationship between a man and a woman. Nothing in this life is closer to the paradise than closer to paradise than marital love, and nothing in this life is closer to hell than a broken marriage. But most of you already know that, don't you? Uh, this is captured perhaps most vividly and um, most explicitly by King Solomon. There, there are a couple books in the Old Testament attributed to him. One is uh, Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, he's going through all the curses of the universe. There's a lot. Uh, you know, work is a curse and, and life is a curse. And anyways, everything's a curse, right? So, but then he gets to Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and he says, I find something more bitter than death. Death, of course, is the curse, it's the ultimate curse. It's like, this is the ultimate separation. Like, this is where life is headed. And he says, um, Solomon says, there's something worse than all other curses of sin. And we're like, all other curses? He's like, yes. Like, worse than like working a, a meaningless job all the days of your life, a job that you hate. And he's like, it's worse. Worse than having like an incurable disease. He's like, it's worse. Worse than, than being enslaved, than having no freedom in life. He's like, it's worse. He's like, what is it? And his answer is, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are like fetters. <gasps> like, Solomon, what your mama do to you, boy? Come here. 
But then, but then you turn to the next book, um, Song of Songs, another book attributed to him, and he pins this famous poem about marital love. In chapter 8, he says, and I quote, this is, this is his idea of marital love. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Sheol, literally, like it could be translated to hell. It's the strongest. It won't let you go in the same way that hell will never let you go. Sheol will never let you go. I will never let you go. Passion fierces the grave. It, it flashes or flashes of fire, a raging flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor neither can floods drown it. If one offered for love all the wealth of one's house, if you offer me all the wealth in the universe, it would be utterly scorned. I would never give it up. Do you hear this? Marital love is an unbreakable seal. It's an unquenchable fire. It's worth everything you have in life. It's as unrelenting in hell that according to Song of Psalm, Songs 8, 6, just as hell never releases those who hold it, I will never let you go, he writes. There's one, there's one couple in our church who so loved this passage, the imagery of this, that they asked me to preach this at their wedding. And so then when we got to the part where I was like, and do you take this man to be your husband, to have and hold, so help you God? She looked at me and said, like hell I do. <laughs> that was a biblical answer. <laughs> so Solomon's point. Genesis 2 and 3, this point. Nothing in this life is closer to paradise than marital love, and nothing in this life is closer to hell than a broken marriage. Which brings us to Act 3, Marriage and the Cross. Now now we're finally ready to read the book of Ephesians. Uh, if you've been around for part of the series on the book of Ephesians, you will know you will know this, this image. This is an image of an ancient scale, and this is the metaphor with which Paul uses to, um, to lay out the entire book of Ephesians. On the first half, the first three chapters of Ephesians, he lays out in this lavish detail one side of the scale, like this is what you should, you should weigh your life in terms of. It is God's lavish love for you. I pray that the eyes of your heart could be opened, that you may begin to grasp how high and how wide and how deep and how long is the love of God in Christ, right? That love, like that love has to be way down your life. And then in chapter four, verse one, he says, axios, which is the way, of, does it balance? Is it worthy? Now, now set in the other side of the scale after you've weighed God's love for you, um, all that you think and do, all your relationships, how you spend your money, how you shop, how you work, set everything else. And the question is, does your life balance with that? Or do you act and think and relate to others like a person who is that deeply loved? That's, that's what it means to be a Christian. In chapter five, he's going to then specifically apply this to marriage. But before he does that, chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Now follow God's example. Literally, um, uh, memetai, which would be like where we get the word meme. Yeah. Imitate God. Meme God, therefore, as dearly loved children. So, so God's love for you. Now you imitate that on the other side of your life and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice. So look at Christ's love for you. Let that crush you with his immense weight and then you you act like that you imitate that and then he says now let's talk about what this looks like in marriage 
to imitate Christ's love. He says, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This will apply to marriage, but he specifically, he applies this. This is going to be a, everything that follows goes under this. This is like a heading for him. And he's also going to apply this to fathers, to employees, to slaves and masters, children. He's going to apply this to a number of things. But to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. I was originally scheduled to preach this on Mother's Day. The staff advised I change my schedule. Yeah. Wives submit? Like what in the world? I thought you said that we're equals. Equals don't submit to each other. And if you came up to me and said, wives submit, what do you possibly mean by that? I would say, wait, 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 wait. Submission doesn't have the same meaning in Greek that it has in English. In fact, it's, 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 it's not derogatory. It's used of a, of a soldier submitting himself to a commanding officer. It is noble. It is powerful. It's beautiful. It is, it's this idea of we're on this team together. And, 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 and he says, do it the way you, the, you should look at your husband the way you look at the Lord. But remember, remember, Jesus says the same thing about the naked, the hungry, and, and those in prison. That when you see them, you should see me. So he's just applying that to your husband. So in the same way that you see a naked, hungry prisoner, you see Christ in that person, you should see Christ in your husband. This is not something extraordinary. This is like you see that everywhere. You're supposed to. And this, this, this word is a middle voice in Greek. It means submit yourself. So it's a voluntary act. You, you choose to submit yourself. Nobody's forcing you. He's not saying obey. This is, this is the kind of love and grace that can, cannot be forced or co- coerced. It can't. It has to flow out of your heart. And then notice that this word submit is in brackets because Paul doesn't actually use that word there. You know where that word comes from? The previous verse. Everybody, mutual submission here, everybody is to to submit to one another. You submit to one another. And then he literally just says, wives, yourselves to your own husbands. So the point being that he's not asking something special for wives. He's just pointing out how this applies specifically to wives. If you had asked me, that's how I would answer that. But when we come to the Apostle Paul and say, equals don't submit, Well, if we read the rest of his writings, we see that he says, Jesus did. Jesus did. He completely submitted to God the Father. He made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant. Have you read Philippians chapter 2? And yet, and yet, and yet, Jesus in no way is to be considered inferior to God the Father. In fact, his submission revealed his true greatness, that through his submission, God exalted him, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So so there's nothing weak about choosing to sacrificially submit yourself for the sake of another. In Christ's kingdom, that's how you see true strength and true power. So, So in this context, he stops and he looks at wives says, submit to one another. Do you want to know 
You want to know what it would look like for you to love your husband, not in response to how they act, but in response to how Jesus has loved you. Do you want to know what it would look like to get in on this dance of mutual submission to the tune of sacrificial love? Do you want to know what, what would make the whole world stop and stare at you? If you loved your husband so much that you were willing to submit your own desires to him, that you love him so much that you voluntarily put him before yourself. Now, we live in a world that says you have the right to be happy, you have a right to have things your way, you have a right to do what you want with your life, and you do. Nobody's taking that away from you. You have those rights. But loving your husband with Christ's love means voluntarily giving up your rights. It means having the same attitude as Christ Jesus and making yourself nothing, not because you're some sort of victim. Jesus was not a victim. Do you remember his words? No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. That's true power. So why why would you be willing to lay down your desires for the sake of another? Because you're seeking something better than getting your own way because there's lots of people who get their own way and are miserable. You want something better than that. You want the life of Jesus. You want a life of love. And Jesus showed us the way. It's the way of the cross. It's laying down your life, your desires, and dying to yourself so that you can find the life that is truly life. In his book, uh, Sacred Marriage, Gary Thomas asks this helpful question. He says, what if God designed marriage to make you holy instead of happy? And that's helpful. There is something to that. Um, if you're just seeking your own personal happiness, marriage is not going to go well for you. But um, I also want to, like, I kind of want to caveat this a little bit because God did not just give us marriage to torture us and make us holy. The happiest couples I know are also the most selfless and sacrificial. They've deeply sacrificed, they've set aside their personal aspirations, dreams, and desires for the sake of the other. But here's the secret that shouldn't be a secret in this place. That's the way to find the life that you really want. It is by dying to yourself that you will find yourself. It is by dying that we find the life of Christ. That's what we're invited to. That's what Jesus did for us. And then he said, now, come, follow me. So we could close right there. All the husbands would be really happy. Amen. Amen. Preach it, brother. But uh, before you get too comfortable, you studs, you. Uh, um, he's not done with you. So you're, you're all giddy right now. You're like, oh, you just called me the head of the body. I'm a head. You hear that? Head, body, head, body. Yeah. yeah. I think that means I'm in authority here. And I'm like, that's, that's exactly right. You have authority. You have so much authority. You have the same authority that Jesus had to do what he did. Watch this. Husbands, you love your wives. You love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or, or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands, you have authority to become a servant just like Jesus. 
You have authority to wash your wife's feet. You have authority to die for her. You follow Christ's example. He never once used his power to exalt himself. Never once. He spent his whole life exalting others, blessing others, and when it cost him everything, he gave his life on the cross. And that's how you should love your wife. So you do whatever it takes to exalt and bless and protect and provide for this beautiful woman made in the image of God. And if it costs you your very life, you die for her. That's what it means to be a leader in God's kingdom. When God gives you power for the sake of others, you wash their feet, you die for them. So according to the apostle Paul, Jesus doesn't remove gender roles in marriage. He doesn't. They're still there. They're still a husband. They're still a wife. They're, they're still different. But he redeems it. He transforms it. He redefines what it means to be a leader, what it means to have authority, what it means to submit. How people use this to justify abuse or power trips is just evil. So he does not erase the differences. A husband is not a wife and a wife is not a husband, but rather these two are equal but different, different but complementary people made in the image of God and invited into a dance of love and submission and sacrifice that in which we mirror God's love. So first we receive God's love, Ephesians 1 through 3. We receive God's love and we realize how much love he has for us and then we, we direct it back to him. We praise him. We love him back. But then the apostle Paul says, then, then, when in marriage you turn towards one another and you mirror the love that God has poured out by his spirit, Romans chapter 5, into your hearts, then you mirror that to one another. You love your neighbor as yourself, or in this case, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you hear the echo here? This is the two greatest commandments. First, you experience God's love so that you love God. He loved us first. Now you love him, and then you turn and you love each other as yourself. The, the first and second greatest commandment, love God, love others, is fulfilled and completed in marriage. It is paradise in marriage and marriage in paradise. In fact, the Apostle Paul is going to point us to that very passage. He quotes Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become flesh. And then Paul breaks out of this line of thinking entirely and says this. But this is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife, as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Do you hear this is a profound mystery that the unconditional love and respect we see here between a husband and a wife is just a glimpse of Christ's love for us. Our sacrifices to one another are just a glimpse of his sacrificial love that can't possibly comprehend his great sacrificial love for us. Our commitment to one another, which is supposed to be till death do us part, is just a little foretaste of his commitment to us, which, which exceeds time itself. And, and this is the mystery that somehow two people can come together and have a foretaste of union with God through Christ. The mystery is that our marriages somehow point us and redirect our hearts to God and show the whole world what God's love and his commitment and his grace looks like. 
So your, your marriage is a mirror meant to reflect Christ's love and commitment. Your marriage can give our broken world a glimpse of the redeeming power of God's love through Christ on the cross. That's what the Apostle Paul thinks we need to be obsessed with, what we need to see. Then only when we have that context set can we start talking about, well, how do we actually practically do this? Now, you'll notice today I talked entirely about the ideas and the big vision of what marriage can and should be, and we completely sidestep the application side. Their application is important, and I want you to work this out and godly fear. Uh, if you're looking for some guides to that, there is a helpful book that, that focuses on this specific text and helps walk you through it. It's called Love and Respect by Emerson Egrich. Worth checking out. Or maybe your next step is you just need to process what you've been through or what you're going through. You need to find healthy ways to relate to one another again. Again, you can email care at newstorychurch.life and we can help find a counselor or help you take your next step. We also have a couple's night out coming up. We have that monthly, something to just give you a, something to help you uh, get some traction in there. But I'm gonna leave that between you, your spouse, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. So Father, um, I just want to humbly give this time to you. I know this is a huge topic with so much baggage, Lord. God, I, if anyone leaves here not either crushed or exalted or both from this text, they haven't heard it. I pray that we would be both crushed by the, by the weight of this beauty of the fact that we can never live up to it and then exalted by the goodness that you've invited us into. I pray that that's where we would sit our lives and our marriages. I want to pray specifically for couples who are struggling out there right now today, Lord, that they would begin to experience a, a repentance and a joy that comes in that of dying to yourself. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.